Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we're back. It's another week on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin and Layla Atassi. Laura Johnston is taking a day off. She'll be back tomorrow. Hope you guys had a good weekend. It was yeah. lovely weather. Mm-hmm. Perfect fall weather, right? I'm mm-hmm. jealous of yeah. Laura for having the day off. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to get up to 81 today. I guess this is that that brief period of heat we get before the winter starts to set in. But man, we've gone deep without having cold weather. It's been uh, it's been lovely. Yeah, then then the winter just comes on like a freight train. <laughs> it won't, we won't ease into it at all. It'll just slam us. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Here. Climate change has changed all the models. We never know what we're going to get. Let's begin. Why are Ohioans still subsidizing an Indiana coal-fired energy plant as a result of the corrupt House Bill 6? And how much is it going to cost us? Lisa Garvin, it's kind of a slap in the face that HB6 still lives. That, that I mean, this was something that was created in a $60 million bribery scheme. The whole thing was stinky. And yet pieces of it remain enriching the power companies. And you've got to wonder, and there seems to be no political will to like get rid of every last vestige of House Bill 6 either. Uh, As people know who have been following the scandal, House Bill 6 was subsidizing up to $1.8 billion over the next eight years for two aging coal plants. They're 60 years old plus. They were built in the 50s to uh, supply power for a uranium enrichment plant, which was closed in 2003. So, yeah. I, I basically they're saying that the lawmakers are saying, or some of them anyway, that HB six repeal won't close these plants anyway, and they need this subsidy to protect their credit rating and to guard against wholesale energy price and fluctuations. So, and some have even argued it's not really a subsidy because the money's going directly from ratepayers to the utility. So they're trying everything they can to to keep this intact. Yeah, it's it's a scam on the taxpayers. I mean, if they really believe in it, repeal HB6 and actually have a debate about it because they never debated this. This was never part of a of a public discussion. Coal is old technology. It pollutes the air. And you got Bill Seitz, Bill Seitz, who was the friend of HB6 to his dying breath, will defend this thing that stinks to the high heavens. It, it subsidized nuclear. It subsidized First Energy, which is a big electric provider. And it gives money to an Indiana coal plant. It's not even in Ohio. Although yeah. I guess the smoke blows over into Cincinnati, so we get the worst of it. That's what they say. Yeah, it's called the Clifty Creek plant, the one that's in uh, Madison, Indiana. And apparently a couple of lawmakers traveled down there to take a look at it. And apparently the, it dominates the town. It's a tiny little town of 12,000 people. And this plant just looms over everything in the landscape there. And they weren't allowed to get into the plant. They tried to get into the plant and, and were turned away. Um, but Bill, Bill Seitz, he said that, you know, all these, there have been a couple of bipartisan bills in both the House 
House and Senate to repeal all of HB6. But Bill Seitz says, well, quote, none of them are going anywhere, in my honest opinion. So <laughs> there you have yeah. it. Uh, what, a le- what a legacy for Bill Seitz, the guy who will go down swinging on the the benefits of HB6. It's amazing that that guy can look in the mirror. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That was a segue there about looking in the mirror. The bill came due Friday for two greater Cleveland leaders who abused their positions. What did judges have to say in sentencing former Cuyahoga County Jail Director Ken Mills and former Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson? Layla, it was just coincidence they were sentenced on the same day. Yes. So former jail director Ken Mills, he'll he'll be spending nine months in jail for two counts each of dereliction of duty and falsification. These are, of course, the charges that stemmed from all of his policies that allowed the conditions in the jail to be as awful as they were in the name of making a buck for the county. However, he won't be spending the, the his time in the jail that he oversaw, unfortunately, which I think would have been a very appropriate sentence for him. So retired Summit County Common Police Court Judge uh, Patricia Cosgrove, who sat on this case, called the conditions in the jail under Mills horrific. She was even raising her voice as she recounted how Mills had deprived inmates of food and running water and, and physical and mental health screenings and then lied to county council about his role in blocking an effort to hire nurses in the jail. She said, this is the United States of America. This is not a third world country. There's no excuse to treat other human beings in this manner. And then again, after imposing the sentence, she lambasted Mills. She said, what you have done is unthinkable it's callous. It's indifference. I don't know how you can live with yourself or look at yourself in the mirror. Uh, just really, really hard words for Ken Mills as he is being sentenced and, and hauled off. His his attorney, Kevin Spellacy, was, crit- of course, criticized the case against Mills as hypocrisy and said that the blame is deserved up and down the chain of command above Mills. And, uh, you know, um, so Cosgrove so- wasn't having any of that. <laughs> So let me let me ask something then. I, I mean, Ken Mills was doing what he did at the direction of County Executive Armin Budish. Armin yeah. Budish was the one that wanted to turn the jail into a revenue center by consolidating it and charging people all this money. And Ken Mills was the agent by which that was happening. How come Armin Budish has not come up in any of this? I mean, the, the Cosgrove oh, yeah. was brutal. With Mills. I mean, she laid into him as hard as I've heard a judge lay into somebody. But how do you not mention his boss, who was the the original architect of this plan? That's right. I don't know. But, you know, the investigators aren't really commenting on whether Budish is is under investigation. Um, We don't know. Uh, We'll have to we'll have to see how that how that goes. But, yeah, that struck me, too, that Mills kind of has a point. Spellacy does have a point. Mills is just one cog in the machinery here. Who else is to blame? So I I agree with you completely. It's odd that he didn't come up. Okay. The the Ken Johnson case is much more cut and dry. The other Ken. Policing. (laughs) That's right. He was, but his punishment was even more severe. He's going Mm -hmm. to prison for six years for siphoning tens of thousands of dollars from council, underpaying his taxes, steering government money to keep his adopted sons on the payroll of a community development corporation that he helped fund as a council member. And he's going to be responsible for paying restitution on on all that too. He tried to tell the judge 
I made mistakes. I know that I made mistakes. I should have done things differently, but I didn't purposefully break the law. U.S. District Judge John Adams saw right through that and said, (laughs) this isn't about mistakes. This is about criminal conduct. Johnson's attorney, Myron Watson, argued that Johnson did so much good in the ward, too, steering countless youth away from the streets. And he was begging for leniency, pointed out that anyone uh, or that any more than four years in prison for for you know Johnson, who's 75 years old, would be a death sentence. And that Johnson has two adopted sons who are 17 and they're going to enter the foster care system and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that that, you know, I think that might have played into Adams giving him a slightly lesser sentence than the maximum, but still he's, he's going to, uh, he's going to pay. I, 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 the the idea that he did all this good, I'm, I don't buy it. He, he enriched himself. He saw this as his little personal ATM machine and robbed the taxpayers blind pretending to be their servant. And it's, it's sad that he got away with it for as long as he did. That falls to the leadership at city hall, which the judge pointed out, what was the city hall folks doing? Where was the council president during this time? Where were the accountants? I mean, you know, this took our former columnist and reporter, Mark Namick to dig up. And the judge said, absent the media's coverage of this, he'd still be crooked. He'd still be stealing from the taxpayers. Yeah. I thought that, you know, I, I think that's, I loved how the judge applauded Namick's work. I mean, Namick really gift wrapped this investigation for them with a series of columns exposing all of these schemes. And, you know, yeah, the judge said, but for Namick's work, he would still be fleecing taxpayers. And he underscored the importance of a free press, which I always appreciate. And there's not a lot of it left. It's eroding. You know, the the thing we've talked about in the past, and, and it, it comes up again now because of what he said, is was he delusional or did he just get away with it for so long that he could thought he could talk his way out of it? I mean, to the last, he's standing before the judge. He's been convicted in, in no uncertain terms of major crimes against the taxpayer. He still stands there and said, I didn't commit a crime. I just made mistakes. Does he believe that or did he just feel like I've always been able to talk my way out of trouble? I'll get away with it this time. I think it's the latter. I, I don't think I don't think that he that he actually believes that he, you know, perp- he, he he purposefully broke the law for years, probably years before we know that he did it. Who, I mean, who knows how long these schemes were, were going on? There's there is no chance that Ken Johnson didn't know what he was doing. This was very well orchestrated. And, he, and you're right. He got away with it for so long that he developed a sense of complete hubris and and uh just untouchability over these things. And he probably thought like till the very last minute he was going to squirm his way out of it. <laughs> is is that so. the way, only way that that crooks in public life fall? I mean, we, we talked last week about Pat DeWine not recusing himself from his father's gerrymandering case. Clear conflict of interest. But it, but do they get so full of themselves and so much hubris that they finally make the unforgivable mistake? I mean, there will be hell to pay for Pat DeWine eventually because of what he's doing. He's violating the judicial canons. We saw it with Jimmy DeMora, just overreaching in ways that are unthinkable. But but because they get away from it so long, Larry Householder is another one. They just abuse the hell out of the public taxpayer. And I, and is that the only way they get caught, that they get so power drunk and so full of themselves that they do things like Ken Johnson did? 
Well, to be honest, I think that there are two different kinds of people who are attracted to, to public office. You have the true public servant who wants to do good, who wants to make change. And I honestly think that's that's a dying breed. And then you have the egotistical, you know, egomaniacal, I should say, kind of person who who just, you know, wants power. And I think that Ken Johnson fell into that category. Maybe he began as the first, but he evolved into the second. And that is that's what dominates your decision making if you are that kind of person. And uh, yeah, so those are my two right. cents. We're surrounded by crooks. You're <laughs> listening to This Week in the CLE. Does Cuyahoga County government have a legitimate reason for denying potentially tens of thousands of people the ability to informally challenge their new home appraisals? Lisa Garvin, in the past, after the appraisals have come out, people were given a chance to just go in, have a counseling session with somebody and make an adjustment without going through the official uh, border revision process, which is much more formal and technical. Why isn't Cuyahoga County allowing the informal process this time? Blame it on the pandemic, which sometimes can be a convenient scapegoat for people. But yeah, they said that the pandemic-related delays led to late approval of the parameters for this year's appraisal, and so that left them no time for informal appeals. So the timeline got so severely shortened. As people know, um, or may not know, the appraisals this year were based on sales prices in the first quarter of this year, which were, as most people know, pretty crazy. And most houses were going for well over asking. So, uh, yeah, I, I you're just going to have to yeah, if you the, wait. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, the tax bills, are they have to put together the tax bills. And because of that right. delay, they just don't have the time. So it seems like right. it's legitimate. But the, the other thing that they point out is, yeah, you're right. The appraisals are based on the first quarter, but the prices have continued to go up. So if you right. go to the border revision, you have to get an appraisal. There's a chance that you won't you won't get your appraisal down. They may boost it. So they're they're mm -hmm. thinking a lot of people are not happy about this, but they're just going to grumble and accept it because there's a real danger. You can actually go higher. Right, right. And independent appraisals may be required in these cases because you will have to go in front of the county board of revision to argue your case for a lower appraisal. Um, those will only be held between January 1st and March 31st of next year. And as you said, there's no chance for any resolution for any homeowners before their tax bill arrives. And in an independent appraisal, if it's required in your case, is going to cost you a few hundred dollars to, to get done. So it's going to be an added cost if you really want to argue that appraisal. In the past, they've done these appraisals when there was a lot of market volatility that dropped prices. And so there were a bunch of appraisals that were off base that people were able to go in and successfully challenge and drop. It's different when you're in a in a rising market. And so I, I think the county's probably on very strong footing here. They'll probably welcome the border revision review because it just means the property values go up again. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Does history support the recent claim by Cleveland City Council leadership that their rushed setting aside of $20 million for broadband expansion was business as usual? Leila Tassi, I'm glad we did this story because what they were claiming when they did this was just poppycock. And now we've shown that that's the case. What did we show? Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot lately on the podcast, and it's because it was so ridiculous. 
A few weeks ago, out of the clear blue sky, Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly, who is running for mayor, proposed legislation to encumber $20 million for a broadband expansion in the city without knowing who would do it, how much it would really cost, or basically any details at all. And apart from a political stunt, we could not think of what reason they would have to encumber this money prematurely like that after holding only one very shallow hearing about it in the Finance Committee, which is typically the last stop for legislation before it's, it, it goes for passage. So we we wrote about that for what it was, but then we got a response from from a council spokesperson that said this was an IT proposal and all IT goes straight to finance. Except this isn't just IT. An IT proposal is furnishing technology for city departments, not laying infrastructure for what could eventually become a new city utility. This is a big deal and it demands a series of hearings and in fact, years ago the last time council approved a proposal to lay wires throughout the city, it was subject to a series of exhaustive hearings and, and lots of vetting before the money was encumbered. And that was in the 1980s when they were developing deals to offer cable TV to residents. So Stimulus Watch reporter Robin Goist dug deep in the archives for our coverage of all of those debates and she learned that the proposal had even become the subject of a city club panel discussion before council voted upon it. She laid out all the parallels between that decades-old proposal and this one, and I think effectively demonstrated that bringing broadband to the masses is far more than a simple IT request, and it demands a full vetting by city council committees. Well, and in the what it needs vetting is who who's going to get it, how is it going to be distributed? How widespread can you go? You can't figure out how much money you need for it until you figure that stuff out. You, How much of a subsidy do you want to give to people to have the same broadband that people in the suburbs have? There's been no discussion of that. And, and you know, That's people right. keep pointing to Digital C saying, well, Digital C is going to do it. Digital C is going to do it. But every time we ask Digital C about it, they said, look, We'd love to do it, but we've not communicated about this. Nobody's talked to us about this. So there's this massive disconnect. And even if Digital C had a full-fledged plan, the council should still air it out. Here, here's what Digital C's plan is. Here's the neighborhoods they want to go to. Should we be adjusting that? And there's been none of that. So when, when city council came out after we pointed this out and said, this is absolutely normal. It just goes to the finance committee. It's an IT project. We, we figured, all right, let's go look at the last time we ran uncountable <laughs> miles of cable through the city and see if a precursor to this council actually did its job. We should point out that there are council members that that feel this way. Kerry McCormick at the hearing where this happened said, did I miss two years of research? What, you, what, what, right. what are we missing here? And voted against it. So this was bad business by city council and the council leadership and Kevin Kelly. It seemed like he was trying to build something he could campaign on by doing bad policy. Again, another serious misstep. Is this how he would lead if he were mayor? But if I if I Oof. may step in and be devil's advocate for just a second, I mean, you Mr. know, I, I was not Mr. here. For, I was not here for the cable wars. I was already in Texas when it happened. But when you look at it, Cleveland was years behind everybody else getting cable because they spent so long going back and forth. And two, this money, this the money to pay for this broadband is it has to be encumbered by like 2024. So there 
they're they're working on a much shorter timeline. So I mean, it was a very interesting comparison. And yes, we do need more vetting, but it almost seemed like too much vetting kept cable from coming to Cleveland for much longer than it should have. Just my own two cents. Layla. I think that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a, that, that protracted. Yes, you're right. And I think, I think back then what, what Robin found was that people were getting annoyed with how long it was taking to get to the, to that point. But this was a single hearing where the, the council, the council seemed so uneducated on the details of what they were looking at that they could barely ask the appropriate mm-hmm. questions at the committee table. Carrie McCormick was really the only one who was like, wait a minute, am I mistaken? He said, you know, I when we were talking about, you know, lead abatement, we we drew upon two years of research and had a series of hearings to, to discuss whether we're going to set aside money for that project. Why is this being rushed through? I mean, it just seemed, you know, we, Sharon Dumas, the finance uh, director, came to the table and said, you know, it's important that we do this now. It's, and with no details, it just I, it begs the question, why so quickly? Why so? I mean, from one end of the of the spectrum to the other, you know, with the pendulum swings very, very widely here. I just I just and, think it was too fast. And the point of our story was to say hogwash to the people that said this was the way we do things. It's not the way they do things. What they did was very unusual. And all of their statements to the contrary, we proved it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson made a surprising announcement in his State of the City speech about the Greater Cleveland Partnership coordinating the big plans for lakefront development. We talked about that on Friday, but we hadn't heard from GCP. What did the GCP chief, Beiju Shaw, have to say in his clarification of the agency's role? Lisa Garvin, we reached him on Friday, and he told us how it's going to work. Well, basically, the city will be in the driver's seat, as he said, for this lakefront project and the greater Cleveland Partnership will not have a leadership role. They will instead be working on engaging, you know, public, private, and civic groups and other stakeholders. So I guess that was the original thinking that the partnership was going to be leading this project? Well, we we didn't know because nobody yeah. had heard of this before the State of the City speech. But when Jackson said, hey, the GCP stepping up to take the coordination role, we were like, really? That's, you know, we had heard that they were looking for somebody to manage it, to, to kind of take care of all of the, the paperwork and keep pushing it. And when Jackson said what he said, there'd been no precursor to that. So that we wanted to reach out. And it does seem like Beju Shaw was saying, yeah, 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 it's not it's not as much as you think. Yes, we'll be we'll be involved, but the city's in charge of this. Yeah, he's apparently envisioning like topic focused working groups and then an overall long term project management group. So and they still have to work on a public input process for this two hundred and thirty million dollar project. But, yeah, I I don't know with a new administration coming in. I I, I don't know. I, I, hopefully Justin Bibbs priorities for the lakefront will be the same as Jackson's, but it's kind of a I would think the GCP would be better suited for a leadership role myself. Well, and what you're presuming Justin Bibb's going to win there, but the GCP uh, does (laughs) survive administrations. Like, you know, the next mayor could be a one-term mayor and, and this is not a four-year project that will take longer. And so having some continuity is what the GCP can provide. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's talk about Mansfield Frazier, a signature Cleveland character who had the vision to build a winery on the grounds of demolished Cleveland homes. He died over the weekend. 
Leila Tassi, he's a guy that had a just a bunch of different iterations of his devotion to the city. That's true. Uh, having had the pleasure of crossing pat- paths with him many times, I was so sad to hear this news yesterday. He died of liver cancer on Saturday. He was 78 years old. He's, like you said, Chris, he's best known for the winery, which he began on, on property in the Huff neighborhood. He called it Chateau Huff, and he hired formerly incarcerated people to work there. He also founded nonprofit, the nonprofit organization Neighborhood Solutions in 2004, and that's an agency that's focused on using educational and entrepreneurial strategies to help formerly incarcerated people reenter society, and it also reaches out to at-risk youth. He was uh, you know, a true son of Cleveland, born on Cleveland's east side, graduated from East Tech High School. He worked at Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company as a pipe welder on the downtown steam system. But he said he was passed over for a promotion because his bosses told him that his coworkers weren't ready for a black boss. So he ended up leaving that job and he left his marriage, too, and he turned to crime. He counterfeited credit cards across the country and eventually served a total of six years in prison for that. And then during one 27-month stint in, in Ashland, Kentucky, he used that time to turn himself around. And he taught himself how to write. He authored a book called From Behind the Wall, a collection of essays in which he shared his thoughts and his perspectives on racism and the criminal justice system. And then after he was released, he became a journalist. He wrote for publications like The Call and Post, Downtown Tab, City News and Cool Cleveland. So his life story was 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 one of redemption, not just for himself, but for many, many others who helped transition into a productive life post-incarceration. I really I can't think of anyone quite like him in Cleveland. He he and his no, influence that, will surely uh, be missed here. Yeah, he's he's just one of the and he was a tireless advocate for it. I, you do have to to salute the vision for the winery. I mean, as people this is following the foreclosure crisis and houses are being torn down and the city was vacuuming out and he drives to the neighborhoods and instead of seeing ruin and abandonment, he saw winery. And and he built one and he used it to employ people coming back from prison or at risk youth. Um, and and it, and it's there 10 years later. It's still thriving all because of one guy's vision. It's really uh, quite something. I, I hadn't known he was sick and was sad to hear that he had passed. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people talking about him over the next few days. He touched a lot of people. You're listening to this week in the CLE which Ohio Department of Government has the most employees? Lisa Garvin, it was a question we asked a couple of weeks ago, and we had a reporter go out and find it. So let's talk about it. Number one by a long shot is the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections with more than 11,400 employees, and that includes jailers and correction officers as staff and so forth. Number two, distant number two, is the Ohio Department of Transportation with only 4,900 employees. And then rounding out the top five, DPS is number three at 35. 3,539 people. Number four, mental health and addiction services with only 2,971. And then the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services is number five at 2,949. So what's wrong with this picture? I mean, we're spending a lot to keep people in prison apparently and not enough or not spending enough or putting more resources on keeping people in prison than we are than helping them with mental health and addiction services. Seems kind of lopsided to me. 
Yeah, you'd think that that kind of cost would get people to to consider just who's behind bars and whether there is rehabilitation you could do outside of the prison system. The U.S. is a, one of the leading countries for putting people into prison. Um, and when you think about the number of people employed in that system, it's quite a bit of cost for the taxpayer. Anyway, interesting to, to look at it from that light. I don't know that I would have predicted that, um, but but it, it's logical that that's what it is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for a Monday. We're a little bit short. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>